What's up, guys? It's Little D from FMF. When I'm not mixing gas and hauling ass, I'm listening to Big MX Radio. Hey, guys, what's up? This is Andy Frisella here. You're listening to Big MX Radio. But when you're done with this episode, come check out the MFCEO project, mfceo.com. I got all your motivation. I've got everything you need to know about running your brand. I've got everything you need to know about getting shit done, and we can do it together. can't expect that everyone is as passionate about racing as we are. We can't expect that everyone is able to hear the silent call of the sea at 5am. Not everyone possesses the ability to smell the difference between rich and lean. nor the ear to differentiate the bark of two cylinders from four. It would not be fair of us to assume that the world understands the yearning and overwhelming compulsion that we have to push through pain, angst, frustration and failure. Some people might not understand the desire to test physical limits, conquer fear, or to tangle with the forces of gravity and physics. But we don't make product for them. to the future but embrace our past we study we analyze we race on Sunday so we can innovate on Monday we exercise trial and error religiously through our commitment to the pursuit of perfection. We learn. How to make products for the people that are capable of dedicating everything to sport. Whether there is a championship involved or not. Alpine stars, one goal, one vision.
from Grundle. Kingsley turns that five sideways. Brian the gate is down. This is a sharp left-hander. Who's going to shot? Looks like Darcy Lange on that Richmond Gallo Kawasaki gets the jump. That's where it all started. Big MX Radio, brought to you by Fly Racing USA, is on the air. Fueled by passion, focused on motocross. W Wheels USA, Moto Ice Wrap, Viral Goggle Brand, and Maxima USA make it possible to bring you the news, the interviews, and the point of views inside the sport of motocross. The gate's about to drop on Big MX Radio. Welcome to the Big MX Radio Podcast Show brought to you by Fly Racing and FMF. And with me on the line, we've got from Enzo Suspension, Ross Maeda. Ross, how's it going? Good, good. Welcome to the Big MX Radio Show, my friend. It's been a long time coming that we eventually have you on, and it's a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Nice to be here. So, uh, um, what, what's new and exciting at Enzo uh, race, Racing uh, Suspension t- today? What's, uh, what's some, of the, some of the things you're, you guys are working on? Well, right now we're in the busy season. Um, it's, it's funny. I've been in this industry for a long time, and it, it never seems to change. Uh, the winter time when it's racing has started and everything, it also gets very busy with customer uh, work as well, and I don't know if that's a coincidence or the professional racing scene motivates people to ride more, but we always get really busy during uh, the racing season. So right now, we're just really, really busy and trying to catch up with customer work as well as staying on top of uh, race support. For sure, and you guys provide service for both race report and uh, your your casual weekend warrior. Um, like, what what's a bigger part of your uh, of your market? Like, what, what what do you guys work on more uh, more professional stuff or more uh, guys like me? Um, well, you know, for sure, we do our share of uh, professional race team stuff, um, but we also, you know, we do a wide range of of. Uh, motocross customers for sure no i absolutely like uh a quick story the the first um posters i ever got as a motocross fan i was about eight or nine years old went to a canadian national and uh grabbed a poster from brad hagseth who uh that year was the western canadian championship and uh from my understanding he was running uh some from some enzo suspension because i i grew up with that logo on my wall for uh I, i for whatever reason i was i always kept looking at that logo uh, yeah, Hagseth, um, I remember the name, but, uh, <laughs> it's been so long, I don't no really, doubt. I think it's a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, he, uh, <clears throat> we just supported some guys that would come from Canada, but we also, uh, supported, uh, racers there for racing in the Canadian Championships. 
Yeah, actually, he, he, uh, he like Brad Hagseth, I believe he's from the States, and uh, he actually won the Canadian, the, the, the Western Regional uh, Canadian National Championship for the 125 class in uh, 2000 or 2001, if I'm not mistake, mistaken. And uh, yeah, that was just one of the things that I kind of, my first connection to Enzo was just like this poster that for whatever reason, like the, the logo was across the bottom of all the sponsors, and, and yours seems to just jump off the page for me. I, I know there's a cool, kind of a cool story behind that logo. Um, and the name itself. Yeah, the, the, the name um, was uh, I had gone to Europe on, I had, it was for vacation. I, uh, I wanted to go to Europe and watch some uh, European GP, World Championship GPs. Uh, so I had gone to Austria first, to Sittendorf. And when I was there, I met a, an Italian guy that was roughly the same age as me, and he uh, uh, he was hanging out with with a Mako Italian Mako rider or something. But uh, he turned out to be a guy that was producing his own aftermarket rear shocks, and uh, I was. I was fascinated by that, and so we got to be friends, and um, we, you know, we corresponded uh, by letters, you know, long after I'd met him, and then he ended up coming to uh, America and living with me for about six months, and we would talk about suspension and test things and everything. It was... uh, for me, it was it was very uh, interesting because you know I had been working for KYB at that time for probably about four years or so, and I was you know I was really into it, but um, actually making my own component was something that you know I would never would have tried to do, and uh, actually meeting him and working with him. Um, I won't say it gave me confidence, but it 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 kind of showed me that you know you didn't have to be some genius or something to do it. Uh, you know, he he was just kind of copying existing designs and adding things of his own, so it, it was really a lot of fun. Oh, cool, cool. But uh, his name was Enzo, and. Um, I had one of the first things that I actually made on my own and developed was uh, a shock piston, and um, I I did it with with him. So whenever I would make reference to it, I would always uh, refer to it as the Enzo piston. And um, I remember just, when he had told me his name originally, I thought it was really unusual, but uh, later, whenever I would mention his name, you know, everybody would, would kind of say, what is that? And so I thought, well, that's, you know, a perfect name uh, to call my company because it attracts a lot of attention. So that's, that's originally how I got the name for Enzo. Okay, but, fair um he uh he the interesting thing about it was as time went on he he kind of lost interest in it 
in motocross and moved on. He was doing something in boats, I believe. And he came back and stayed with me again for a while later, but then I kind of lost touch with him after he had returned to Europe. And um, about, only about, I'd say 12 or 15 years ago, uh, I got a letter in the mail, and it was an airmail letter in those real thin envelopes. And I recognized the writing that it was Izenzo. And so I, I opened the letter up, and it was all in Italian. <laughs> I thought, well, he must be senile or something now. He doesn't remember that I, I couldn't speak Italian. <laughs> so I just folded the letter up and put it in my wallet and waited till I saw someone that could could read it to me. And finally, when when I got it read to me, they said, um, this is, letter is actually from Enzo's mother. And Enzo had died. And he had had like a, a brain tumor or aneurysm or something. But um, the, the thing was, it was his mother writing a letter to me because I had done an interview with an Italian magazine probably a couple months earlier, and uh, that magazine came out in Italy, and in that interview, I had mentioned about how I got the name and stuff, so somebody, you know, in motocross saw that and knew Enzo's mother, so he contacted her and told her the story, and so she had written a letter to me telling me that about, you know, what happened to Enzo and stuff, and that she was uh, really kind of moved that I had named my company after her son, and so she was really happy and thanked me for that. That's cool. But, you know, that was a shock to me when, when I got that, that uh, phone call. No kidding, yeah. Uh, like uh, to, to receive news like that, especially to have somebody else read it to you, is kind of wild. Um, like, obviously, this was an individual who you, you shared a lot of, uh, of of time with. A lot of you guys were both passionate about what you did. Do you think that uh, working with Enzo is something that kind of uh, uh, kind of triggered your creativity within uh, doing suspension, and kind of uh, and also kind of uh, allowed you to simplify it in your own mind? Well, yeah, for sure. Like I said. Um, I never ever would have, you know, well, at the time I was thinking like, I've just got so much to learn and I was just really hungry for knowledge and stuff. But, um, for sure I had ideas by then and opinions, but, uh, being exposed to him and seeing him just doing whatever he wanted it motivated me to, you know, to try things on my own for sure. Absolutely. Now, uh, so um, you're you're a guy who was active within the sport of motocross for a long time, uh, riding long into uh, like long past your uh, competitive, so to speak. And then, obviously, now you, you've uh, sustained an injury that doesn't allow you to do so. Uh, how, how close do you do you follow things uh, as far as like trends within racing and uh, and I guess like I guess having a business a part of that, you you kind of have to stay on top of that full time. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I've always. Uh, really been into motocross from when I was 
I think I started when I was about 12, 13 years old. And, you know, everything about it is interesting to me. You know, I always used to say to my friends that yeah, there's so many things about it that are interesting to me. So, you know, like the mechanical end, uh, you know, engine development, suspension development, and then the riders themselves, the racing, Europe and USA and Japan. So there was always something uh, to learn and, and, and be interested in. So, you know, I'm always listening and, and reading and, and uh, just basically I'm so interested in it. I, I pretty much follow um, a lot of different facets of it. Fair enough. Like, how how different is the philosophy of, of what uh, people are looking for in bike setup, in a bike feel, in in contrast to your uh, your mid level B rider, weekend warrior guys like myself, and and guys who uh, take it seriously and, and 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 race at a professional level. Well, um, you know the thing about working uh, with with factory riders or high-level riders is um, basically you're, you're, uh, you're just dealing with one rider and uh, just basically listen to his comments and, and uh, articulating what he says with what needs to be done. Um, working with a customer is essentially the same thing, but... Um, uh, you know, it's like very often you have to go a little bit further with with uh, the top level riders because often their their uh, riding ability exceeds possibly the capabilities of the, the production components. That, that seems wild to me because I don't think I've ever o- overridden any type of motorcycle by any means. Um, but uh, like, as far as like, say, like a guy like myself, I've got a, a 2016 252 stroke from KTM. I got the four CS fork on there. Um, like I, I, to, for me, I never feel confident of what that fork is going to do. Uh, like, why is that? Well, you know, it's. I'm obviously a KYB guy. I've worked for them since 1976, but uh, I'm also uh, working a lot with Showa and uh, WP components. But that particular fork, um, when when it first came out and I first saw it, my impression was that uh, WP and KTM were trying to do something different and uh, they were it was kind of following the trend of the Japanese companies at the time because um, at that period of time uh, all the Japanese manufacturers had come to KYB and said uh, motocross is getting too expensive and it's getting out of hand and the level and cost of the production components was just you know, driving the cost of the motorcycle way up. So they were trying to uh, reduce the cost of the bike by slowing down the 
I'll say the the level of development that went into production suspension. So that that's a whole different story about like developing the air suspension and stuff like that. But um, in the case of the WP four CS four, that kind of came out at the same time. And so when I first saw it, I thought, wow, they're they're just trying to follow what the Japanese are doing and, and do something different. Um, but then the more I looked at it and worked with it, I started to think, well, they're trying to save money, and that's why they they did this and cut this out. And, but then as, as time went on, I started to think, well, in a lot of ways, this may actually cost more. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> At the end of the day, it, it it's a it's a fork system that, not to insult any engineers or designers or anything, but it just it didn't um, I don't know it didn't keep up with the the trend of of what was available at the time. I and that, that was in my opinion um, the stuff that Japan was doing was at least the the whole uh, order from the manufacturers to KYB was, it, you know, we want something that's new and uh, a little, you know, kind of innovative, and it has to be cheaper. Uh, but it had the performance has to be equal or possibly better, but it can't be worse. Um, but, and I, I believe what show and KYB were doing at the time was, uh, a sincere effort at that. And, uh, Aaron, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways it did, they did achieve that. But, uh, WP4, I think it, it just kind of really, uh, took a bad turn. Um, but as I always say, test riders somewhere on some track somebody said this is good this is better and that's why they did it totally yeah absolutely someone had to have given that thing the stamp of approval it's not going to get mine anytime soon uh it sounds like i need to invest in some w or some some uh kyb stuff uh for that thing because honestly like i have a 2005 kx 252 stroke and that thing is notorious for handling uh for everyone saying that it handles poorly but in co- in contrast to my ktm uh, i'd much prefer uh the kawasaki and i think that's actually saying something <laughs> yeah it's you know it's I think a lot of the the notoriety that some bikes get are it's it's almost like you know there there's very very few bikes in the last 20 or even 30 years that are are horrible you know I mean they're they're you know do you like even myself, you know, I would, I remember uh, one of the best racing seasons I had was 1981. And in my mind, my 1981 RM125 was, was really, really good. And for years and years, I used to think, yeah, that, that thing was still good compared to modern stuff. Just, um, you know, it, it, it couldn't be, you know, the new stuff is just different, but that still has some, some things that were better. 
but then I actually rode one <laughs> you know, 15, 20 years later, and I thought, well, what was I thinking? You know, the, the things had moved on, and, and that thing was really not even close to being competitive. Fair enough. Everything does move forward, and and that's actually kind of one of the, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, is the fact that you've been within the sport for so long, and uh, your your knowledge uh, is, is such a broad um, spectrum as far as time wise. Like, how much of things that you learned about suspension twenty, thirty years ago still applies to what you're doing now and, and working with, uh, regardless of who you're working with? Um. Well, the as far as um, <coughs> I'll say uh, uh, testing technology or just uh, uh, technique of, of you know that that's what testing and, and development's all about is is collecting data from riders, getting their their uh, opinions and stuff and and articulating the information you get from them into what needs to mechanically be done to the components uh, that you know hasn't changed um, but for sure the systems and um, you know what what changes what that kind of stuff has changed and uh, so you know that a lot has, has changed dramatically but a lot has not and you know like some people would say to me, oh, you've got so much experience. You've been working, you know, you've been at, at KYB for so long and you've got like 40 years of experience. But sometimes I used to say, yeah, but things have moved on so much and like 30 of that is useless. <laughs> but <laughs> it's, 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 you know, and as far as what I learned and learning how to deal with things, that is you know, invaluable for sure. But, um, and as far as, you know, the technology that's moved on so far, a lot of that is, is completely useless. Hey everyone, let's take a break and listen to some commercials quickly. Then we'll be right back to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Flyracing.com is the home of quality and innovation. The design team at Fly tirelessly rebuild and retool premium lines like the Evolution 2.0 and Light Hydrogen with features like zipper lock to prevent closure failures and EVO's BOA technology, which ensures the perfect fit. Complete your protective gear combo head-to-toe with Fly Racing F2 Carbon MIPS Retrospect and Fly's entry into the premium boot segment with their sector. All products and colorways are available at flyracing.com. In motorsports, the action pulls us in, and often we never get close enough to the exhilaration and athletes that amaze us. Although trackside seats are available, nothing gets you closer to motocross and supercross action than the collective experience. Dave Drakes has created an exclusive opportunity to get you closer to the sport you love so much. If you want an all-access experience with Adam or Tyler Knapp, Henry Miller, John Ames, or even the cat, AJ Catanzaro, you need to check out the collective experience today. The collectivexp.com, as well as the collective ex on Instagram, is where you can find the collective experience. Do so immediately. The collective experience. Nobody gets you closer. What's wrong, Jeff? I don't know, Jay. Well, 
You better fuel up with a nutritious breakfast with oats and bran. Oats and bran? I didn't think there was such a thing. That's what I used to think. Now, I start out every morning with a bowl of Amigos. For extreme kids like us. What's up, guys? It's Bruce Cook here with Nitro Circus. We're coming to Kelowna, BC, May 25th for the Next Level Tour, and I'm so stoked to see you there. The most action-packed event on the planet is back, bigger and crazier than ever before, with the largest ramps you've ever seen. Nitro Circus, the global youth entertainment phenomenon, returns to North America this year with the epic Next Level Tour. This spectacular brand new production, an all-moto adrenaline rush, will have depth-defying tricks, jaw-dropping world's firsts, and absurd stunts. It all adds up to a thrilling show simply too big to fit indoors. The Next Level Tour launches mid-May, just in time for summer, and will visit over 10 cities across the continent through June. Brainchild of Travis Pastrana, global superstar, action sports icon, and Nitro Circus ringleader, the Next Level Tour features the best athletes in action sports taking on the biggest ramps in the world. The Nitro Circus design team has put it all on the line with this show, doubling down on the risk factor. The FMX Next Level Takeoff Ramp alone, a towering 15 feet above the show floor, a whopping 5 feet taller than any ramp toured before, will launch riders more than 60 feet into the sky. The landing ramp also looms large, standing 23 feet in height. The Nitro Circus Next Level Tour will include several athletes, including Bruce Cook, Jared McNeil, Jared Duffy, Blake, Bilko Williams, and many more. For more information, visit nitrocircus.com. Hey, Big MX listeners, just wanted to take a moment to uh, let you guys know about Viral Brand and Viral Brand Goggles. Uh, Viral Brand Goggles are a relatively new company, and we've been working with them for about a year now, and uh, they've got some really cool things going on, which include uh, not only when you buy a pair of goggles, you will not only get a goggle bag, which of course you get with most goggle bags, but uh, with most goggles rather, but uh, you'll also get tear-offs, you get a 10-pack of tear-offs, and you also get an extra clear lens to go along with your mirrored lens than uh, the tinted lens that the goggles come with. Uh, so it's kind of, a more, of a, more of a package than it is just a set of goggles, which if you're going to buy goggles, you're going to need an extra lens, you're going to need tear-offs. So they take care of all that stuff for you, and uh, $74.99 US is uh, an easy asking price. They've also got a 30-day money-back guarantee. If uh, their best fit challenge, if your goggles don't fit your helmet within the first 30 days, get them back to Viral, for uh, and, and they'll take care of you, no questions asked. Uh, so check out the theviralbrand.com today and uh, and and see what the kind of products and the uh, the accessories that they've got. I love the goggles myself and uh, can't wait to see you guys enjoying them as well. Take care. Hey guys, it's Fly Racing's Justin Brayton, winner of the 2018 Daytona Supercross. You're listening to the Big MX Radio. 
Fair enough, but uh, he's d- definitely like I, I think you're honestly looked at as one of the uh, the more knowledgeable individuals of the, uh, the suspension world, and in a lot of ways, that's kind of like the uh, the the dark arts of, of motocross. There's not a lot of people who can confidently say they know a ton about uh, suspension. What are some of the most common misconceptions that people will come to you with, as far as uh, like they, they 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 believe solidly in this one thing that couldn't be further from the truth? Um. Uh, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot, but, uh, a lot of people will, um, be overly concerned with rebound dampening adjustment. And I, in my opinion, you know, most, most, uh, problems stem from compression, uh, how the, how the shock or fork is going down and how it absorbs uh, the impact on the compression stroke. And a lot of these riders that don't really have a lot of experience or maybe sometimes they have got experience, but they just, they've been dealing with things with the wrong information. They all think, oh, you need more rebound. You need more rebound. And I say, the rebound is just, absorbing the energy that the spring or you know creates and after it fully bottoms it it springs back it's that doesn't really control things i um i explain to people the way i explain it is like if you ride across uh, a rough section and there's three holes or whoops or rolling sections um if if your suspension is too soft you're going to go through that section in the fork, the shock is going to compress three quarters of the stroke. And uh, it goes down that deep, and then it's going to spring back. It's the energy is going to push it back. Uh, if you if you push the shock or fork down three quarters of the way, you have that much energy with the spring, and it springs back. And sometimes it'll spring back violently and, and throw the bike out of control. Uh, when in reality, and then they think, oh, I need more rebound because it came back too fast. But the reality is if you have strong enough compression, either spring force or damping force, and you hit those same bumps and you only use half stroke, it's not going to come back as violently. Um, I explain it as the shock absorber going down and springing back is kind of like a bow and arrow. The further back you pull the bow, and the bow, the, the more violently the arrow is going to shoot out. So if you're hitting these bumps and pulling the bow all the way back, it's going to shoot back really violently. Hmm. Whereas if you're hitting these bumps and you're only using half stroke, it's not going to come back so violently and you've cured your rebound problem with compression tapping. That seems to be uh, a misconception a lot of uh, riders have. And another thing that I hear off and on is they'll, they'll, they'll say, oh, my shock needs more rebound. And Technically speaking, rebound, I guess, would would be a noun. It's rebound damping, but it's also a verb. 
uh, my shock is rebounding too fast. It means it's coming back too fast. But sometimes I'll have riders say to me, I need more rebound, I need more rebound, and I'll go, why? And they go, well, I'm hitting that jump, and I can't, I, I can't clear it. And what they want is it to come back faster <laughs> so that they can get up and over the jump. Uh, easier right they won't but pop. Say, yeah they yeah exactly but they're saying i need more rebound but in technical terms that means i need more rebound damping i need it to come back even slower so it's the opposite of what they're trying to say right exactly and uh obviously like there's there's a lot of guys that have a hard time communicating it's almost a language in and of itself um how does someone get better at it um Really, uh, the thing is, as far as learning what does what, uh, when I was first starting as a test rider, I was so paranoid that I couldn't do my job. I would just ride everything I possibly could ride. I would, you know, I was doing some really stupid things like putting springs on that were way too stiff just to see what it felt like and stuff. But it it helped me a lot. And the the main thing that I can suggest to, you know, any rider that wants to learn is to um, play with the adjustment and um, just, you know, ride the track and then try turning in the compression to two, three clicks. And if you can't feel any difference, then try five clicks or something like that. It's all a matter of learning what certain adjustments do and uh, we often do that in in testing like if I think we need to go stiffer I'll just do a pretty um, substantial change on the adjuster first and have them ride it and if they say yeah that's that's better then that's the direction we need to go in. Yeah, like uh, making small changes, a lot of guys can't even feel that there's anything different. If you make a, a substantial change or like a wholesale change, uh, they can at least say that that's good or bad. Like I think uh, there's a lot of guys who go two clicks here or there, and uh, if you can feel two clicks, in my opinion, you are one talented uh, suspension <laughs> tester. Yeah, well, you know, it's again, it also depends on the component sometimes. Sometimes, you know, two clicks on on a show uh you know isn't as noticeable as you know one click with Olean's or something like that. So sometimes it's it's different. And also all uh adjustment mechanisms recently in recent times are all pretty pretty close. Uh back Thirty years ago, there were some pretty wild adjustment mechanisms that I would look at and go, "Wow, who thought of this?" You know, and, and but I could see what they were changing. Well, fair enough. Um, as far as uh, guys you're working with this year in Supercross, I think the most notable being Chad Reed. I was able to be out at the track for the ver- first time that he was doing some testing on the year. Happened to be after I think round four, unfortunately, but. Um, like, um, break us down, if you could, uh, a day going out with Chad Reed testing, because that can be a long day. Uh, that particular day, um, that that project with with Chad is being, um, at, you know, when I was called 
it was KYB needed, you know, they just wanted me to go out and help with the testing. That was actually a KYB test. That wasn't an Enzo racing test. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm still, I still have a con- consultant contract with KYB. And, uh, so I get called in occasionally for when they need help for, for something or an opinion, an extra opinion. Uh, that particular day with Chad, um, it's th- there's there's different levels uh, of testing that go on, and sometimes if you just bring out you know new components or new parts or something, that first day of feeling them out is usually involves just trying different adjustments and and trying different things. Uh, for the rider to become acclimated to it. And sometimes, I mean, I've, I've worked with guys with experience and guys that don't. And very often I have to just stop them and go, okay, look, uh, obviously, you know, this is a learning experience for you. So why don't you, why don't we just keep it like this and you get used to it and maybe click it around or something because if you push somebody too quickly to to make dramatic internal changes, very often you get lost. And so, you know, in, in the case with Chad that day, um, you know, we, we tried a few things and he liked this, he liked that, he didn't like this, he didn't like that. But it, it definitely was, uh, you know, and Chad had enough experience to say, well, yeah, this this is pretty good, but, you know, I'm not, you know, it's like if you're not a rider, if you're a mechanic or an engineer or something, you want the guy to go yes or no, good yeah. or bad, <laughs> you know, and it's very often not the case. Sometimes you think, man, this is pretty good, you know, and then you go to a race, and in a race situation, you learn so many more things, and then you're like, you got to call that guy back and go, remember I said that was good? It's <laughs> not so good. <laughs> Something like that. So, you know, it, it's, um, it, it's, it's not just real cut and dry. You know, testing sometimes takes a long time, especially if there's some unknown factors in the whole project. Fair enough. Well, that's, that's, that's interesting. I know that, uh, Chad was, I think he was there until at least 6 p.m., which is just after the sun goes down, uh, out, out in, in uh, at Elsinore. Yeah, it was Elsinore that particular day. Um, a guy uh, just get finally getting some riding in, and uh, he's he had he's had a, a long season so far, but uh, knocked down at least uh, at least one of his goals. Well, he, you know, the thing is, he's riding <laughs> a new bike, and not only is it a new bike. To him, it's got technology that's different than what he's normally used to. You know, it's a steel frame, and, and it's a European bike, and motor's different and everything. So, you know, it's going to take him a while to really uh, be able to um, make sound decisions on what needs to be done. He's still learning, too. Right, this is the first time in his career that he's riding a, uh, a European motorcycle. He's ridden for every other OEM, I believe. Uh, yeah, all of them. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, like this being completely different, 
Um, do you, are you aware of, of the reason why he stuck with KYB? Obviously, uh, he's he's familiar with that uh, technology, but bringing it onto a KTM, I think that's something that's very uh, unusual to a lot of North American riders. They wouldn't swap suspension like an Olin's or a, a KYB onto a um, onto a KTM. Whereas in Europe, it seems a lot more that's a lot more common. Well. Um... The thing is, uh, I'm not sh- sure. It's, it can't really be so much of a policy, but in Europe, um, I've heard that KTM and Husky in general, they're, uh, they re- the company uh, really tries to, con- con- well, I'll say protect or uh, promote WP suspension because um it's obviously as they have a big uh ownership of of WP right um and so they they want uh people to keep using WP on the bike um the japanese have, have you know and they've kind of tried to do that in the past but um there were certainly you know there was a period with yamaha and the 70s and 80s where they were using Olean's on the factory bikes and I think what Yamaha started to uh, realize is a lot of the customer base would say oh well if I buy a Yamaha I have to buy Olean suspension and you know that was kind of a I don't know maybe it was a negative point you know like for a customer to say, should I get a Suzuki or should I get a Yamaha? Well, if I get a Yamaha, I have to buy a Leans, and that's going to cost more money. And that was a negative point to Yamaha. So they, I think they they started to think, well, we need to work more with the OEM stuff like that. But in Europe, I guess if you are a getting any, you know, level of support from KTM or Husqvarna, you're obligated to use WP suspension. And rightfully so, they they support you. Right. But um, the average, like, just customers in in Europe that buy KTMs or Huskies, uh, technical touch, the KYB importer and representative in Europe, they, they sell a lot of the, the KYB kit components for for the KTM and Husky models. So it's for sure a, a viable alternative. Fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. In, in my opinion, I think it's, it's all about getting the right components underneath you. I think in in a way, motocross has uh, reluctantly been like they don't really go the way of, uh, say, uh, a mountain bike scenario where you buy a frame or you buy a bicycle and then you upgrade the components. Moto- most motocross uh, fans and weekend warriors, guys that ride on a regular basis, are pretty reluctant to change any type of um, chassis components to their bikes. Whereas uh, in in the the cycling industry, guys will change uh, a rock shock for a uh, um, like a fox, uh, fox shock, and stuff like that, and they'll actually move things around to just get, get themselves a better ride. Yeah, you know the thing is, motocross kind of used to be like that. Um, I'd say in the seventies. Okay. 
and into the 80s. But I remember there was definitely a shift in the industry where people were sticking with stock, you know, components and stuff. There was, when I first started, you know, people were making pipes and stuff like that, exhaust pipes and heavily modifying the engines. Uh, then I remember there was a period around in the mid-80s where everybody started to realize that the the exhausts that were coming on the spike stock were actually the best. They were better than aftermarket components at the time. And uh, so I remember a period where I was racing and I would smash my pipe or whatever and it was you know it was it was really necessary to go find another new one and product brand new stock pipes were really expensive and aftermarket pipes were quite a bit cheaper but you know in late in the years before and the years after you know the the aftermarket pipe was considered an upgrade but at that time it was like everybody wanted to use the stock pipes and uh, as time went on, you know, suspension evolved to the point where the production components were so good and they had so much potential in uh, being modified that it wasn't really necessary to go out and buy, you know, something different. I think the bicycle industry is, a, um, you know, they're, even their production bike that they they sell is a conglomeration of aftermarket components pretty so much yeah it's a little easier to do that i think yeah like yeah, like the a top end bike not only is a top end frame but they usually couple that with a uh uh shimano xtr or xt uh component tree which is kind of like that the top of the line stuff anyway you can kind of go upwards from that but um yeah so it's interesting to find out like if say if if i was brought buying a a brand new um say a husky 450 the 2018 uh factor edition uh and, and i said ross outfit me with uh the the just the suspension that I'm going to like best, where, which, what direction are you sending me in? Well, you know, the thing too is I've, I've never been the world's greatest salesman. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, so I speak to people, uh, honest, you know, I try to be honest and, uh, you know, I always tell people like, we very much often get customers to just call us and go, I just bought a brand new, this, you know, this or that model. And I want you to do the suspension. And then I'll say, okay, um, how much do you weigh? You know, what, what kind of riding do you do? And then I'll say, what, what problems are you having with the, what's, what's stock? And they'll say, "Uh, I haven't even ridden it. I just want you to dial it in. And I go, well, you, you've got to ride it first. The The most important thing about setting your bike up is getting the correct spring rate for your weight. Um, if you are in the weight range that the bike comes stock, ride it. You know, ride it and click it around, and you may, you may love it, you know, but for you to just immediately just jump in and, and, and want to spend all this money is a little bit foolish. 
unless you already had one before and you know what you want. But, uh, you know, that's the thing is like when they say set my bike up, well, I have to know what your requirements are. I said it's it's a lot. The analogy that I use often is um, buying a, a suit off the rack. And then you, you try it on and you go, well, the pants are too long, the arms, the shoulders are too tight. And you go to a tailor and he fits it to you. That's what suspension setup is about. You don't just buy a suit off the rack and take it to the tailor and go, dial this in for me. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's got, you got to try it on and he's got to measure you and you have to, some guys say, yeah, when I bend over, I don't like the pants to go up my butt. <laughs> yeah. And then some guys go, I like when the pants go up my butt. <laughs> and so, you know, it's all about learning what the guy wants and, and satisfying him. But, you know, and as far as just someone that calls, and we get that often, and I always tell them, I go, well, you need to go ride it. You know, even in, and very often it's like they've never ridden a bike before. They went from a Honda to a Suzuki or something, and they just send it to us right off the bat. And I go, you, you've got to ride this thing. Okay, you gotta try that thing on before you send it over to Ross. Uh, where where can people get more information? Where can people uh, source you out if they have ridden their motorcycle and they still feel like uh, Enzo suspension can uh, can help them out, feel a little bit more confident out there? The best thing to do is just call and and talk to to me or or Will, um, because like I said, it's we have questions and. Uh, a lot of times we, you know, I've I've had a guy call up and say, I want a revalve front rear, this, that, uh, and by the end of the conversation, I'm telling them, why don't you just put the right springs on your bike and ride it? You may be happy. And like I said, if I was a salesman, I'd be telling them they needed everything under the sun, but I, I can't do that. <laughs> you <laughs> too honest. Well, yeah, but it's also... I. I've been in the sport so long that I, the one thing with our company is I always try to tell people ahead of time, this is what everything costs. When you come to pick your suspension up, you're going to get a bill that looks like this. Because my experience and everybody else's experience, when you go to a car dealership to get something done, they say, yeah, okay, that'll be a hundred bucks. You show up and it's five hundred bucks, and you're like, "You told me a hundred, and they're like, "Well, you know it's another hundred for using this wrench, and it's another hundred for throwing your tires away and you know i don't I hate that, so I don't want our customers to show up when it's time to pay and start jumping up and down. Fair enough. Well, uh, that's that's. It's been an awesome time talking to you, my friend. I I really enjoy speaking with you about this stuff. I think we are definitely going to have to make you a repeat offender to talk a little bit more about this stuff in the in the in the future. But uh, I I really appreciate the time today, man. Okay. Yeah. It was a pleasure.